Howdy! Hello, Jake! Well, Lorenzo, we have got a slightly overheated steel pot simmering over an antique stove with strawberries and a slight accent of rhubarb of an episode for everyone today. Huh? What? What? Because it's jam-packed. Yeah, okay. Uh, that was one of the just most um, incoherent analogies I've heard in quite a while. Oh, you should hear my comparison to the, uh, what was it? The, uh, no, no, okay, let's not, let's not, let's not. <laughs> I'm gonna stop you there. They sure did run me out of Reno fast, and much like my valiant escape- What? Uh, much like my valiant escape through the suburban wilderness, today, we wade into the swamps of DC's past and present. We'll consider the intentions of the Constitution's framers, and whether or not the upper body of our bicameral system behaves as intended. What's wrong, and what are we gonna do about it? This is Pickett. Oh, oh, I just, I just, I just felt something shiver down my spine. Yeah, it's probably a, a breeze. Can we, can we go on to weather in America? I guess so. I don't think I have a window. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Welcome to weather in America, the segment you love. Yes, you, Sharon Greenfast of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, um, you're going for a real targeted demo, huh? Yeah, I thought it might help. Uh, get, get people engaged. Well, only Sharon Greenfast of Cincinnati, Ohio, though. Well, Sharon Greenfast is gonna love our podcast all the more for it. Your town for today will be Ukiah, California. This town is on the Russian River, it looks like. Yeah, fascinating. Truly relevant information, Jake. Thank you so much. Uh, but but right now I'm going to need absolute silence. I'm going to need you to, to quiet your mental waves, okay? Oh, God. Uh, for I must forecast. I, use, I must use my meteorological capabilities to f- sense, sense the power oh. in the air. Shh. Let's get very quiet. Oh God! My magical abilities are telling. I'm seeing. I'm seeing sun. Lots of sun. <laughs> oh uh, this Wednesday over the next week, expect lots of sun with highs hovering in the high 80s, low 90s. Maybe even maybe even get into the hundreds. I think it's unlikely. Uh, but those lows, those lows are going to be in the 50s. So a lot of variation from night to day. Um, looks like we're heading into heading slowly into fall, but still lingering on to some of those. Some of that summer heat, no? Oh, I thought you were going to start asking for my Zodiac sign. Jeez, that was quite a forecast. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Obviously, I've done my job. Anyway, the Senate. Let's move back on track. Yes, uh, the Senate, home of classic figures in American political history, such as Bill from the Schoolhouse Rock song. Oh, yeah. I am a Bill on Capitol, you know. Also, Phil McFilibuster. Yeah, those don't, don't use too The long-forgotten character who threw Bill in prison for 50 years Right before the vote. His wife, Amenda, had just given birth to two beautiful local ordinances. The director's cut was a whole lot darker. For sure. <laughs> Either way, uh, all jokes aside, joining us today is a distinguished professor of political science at Rutgers University, a member of the Board of Contributors at USA Today, and a scholar of all things senatorial. He's worked alongside members of the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate for decades. Dr. Ross K. Baker. We wanted to jump straight into the content, in, straight into our first question. So uh, the first thing we really wanted to know, how the founders intended the Senate to act relative to the lower body, relative to the House. Here's Professor Schroeder's take. Well, they had a dilemma. They needed the, they needed the equivalent of a House of Lords. They were very suspicious of the public 
the House, they realized, uh, had to be, uh, the members had to be elected directly. And this had to do with the fact that a, a lot of common people had made a lot of sacrifices during the War of Independence. So there had to be one of the, one of the parts of the government had to be under the direct influence of the, uh, of the public. They didn't trust the public, but they needed another way to sort of offset the direct influence the public would have on members of the House of Representatives, so they created the Senate, uh, uh, hoping that it could be like the House of Lords. The problem is we didn't have any lords. And in fact, we specifically had rejected titles of nobility in the Constitution. So what ins instead we did was we uh, basically made the states um, the, uh, the House of Lords. Um, that the uh, that because each senator uh, would uh, each state would have an equal representation in the Senate, uh, the age of eligibility for the Senate was 35 as opposed to 25 uh, in the uh, third excuse me, 30 rather than 25 in the Senate. Um, that you get a more mature uh, group of people who could, in a sense, kind of operate the same way the House of Lords did to kind of slow down the impetuousness. Uh, and the haste with which they feared that the House of Representatives would be operating. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of along, you were kind of getting at it there too. Uh, George Washington famously considered the Senate to be the cooling saucer for the hot tea that is the House. Right. Uh, like an anchor sort of. That's probably uh, apocryphal, but it's an interesting story. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, do, you, do you believe the Senate continues to provide that same uh, aloof level-headedness the framers considered a vital opponent of its existence? Well, it sure does act slowly. <laughs> that's what they were concerned about, Jake. You know, that's certainly, um, you know, the Senate has lived up to that uh, um, reputation. Yeah, I, but I think that that's mostly a function of the polarized nature of American politics. And that's, and that's the, that's the cloud that hangs over everything. That, that's the, that's the sand in the gears. Um, is that uh, members uh, of, of Congress on both sides are just reluctant to rise above party and act on behalf of the, what they see as the nation as a whole um, because it's hard to become a member of Congress. Uh, and it's painful, believe me, to lose a seat uh, when you, once, you, once you've gained it. So they'll, they'll do everything they can uh, to ensure the, the, the likelihood of their reelection um, and if, for example, if you're a Republican, the likelihood of your reelection certainly has been tied to the success of President Trump um, and the likelihood of election for Democratic senators uh, or House members is uh, the perception that they are close to Vice President Biden. Uh, and so those kinds of things are, are, are very, a very, very important um, uh, influence on the behavior of members of Congress. So uh, when one looks at the current state of the Senate, it's pretty easy to see that uh, there is a very tense partisan divide that quite frequently results in, in gridlock and honestly poor conduct. So we were wondering what the evolution of partisanship looked, over, looked like over the years. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. The Senate was least partisan, and this is in re relatively modern times, and I'm talking about post-World War II. Um, the Senate was most bipartisan when the Democrats had a commanding uh, a number of seats. Um, that, that, when, the, when the majority party is strong in the Senate, um, especially over a period of time, 
um, there's a feeling among senators in the minority that they, that in order to get anything done, they've got to work with the majority. Uh, 1958, believe it or not, was one of the most important elections in American history because it, it changed the membership of the United States Senate profoundly. Uh, it gave Democrats control of the Senate they had until 1980. So from 58 to 80, big, big period of time was the golden age of bipartisanship in the United States Senate. Why was it because, well, people were more fair-minded in those days? No, it's because the minority party didn't really have much influence and they decided, well, we better make the deals what we can uh, in order to preserve our own seats. Uh, and it looks like the Democrats are gonna be in control for a long time. So we'll, you know, you know, get along to go along to get along. So kind of moving back to what you were talking about with uh, President Trump and, and the Senate. Earlier this year, you wrote an article about the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump, and you said that it was uh, a critical fork in the road for the character of the body itself. Nine months after the fact, and as the president's uh, nearing the end of his first term in office, how do you feel about the general conduct of the Senate over the past few years? Well, you know, I, I just have seen on, on the part of Republicans in the Senate a, a very, very powerful reluctance to depart uh, with, with the president, uh, even though so many senators have uh, private reservations about the conduct of the president. Um, I, I talk to journalists a lot because they, these are people who are wonderful explainers. Uh, academics are not wonderful explainers. Academics are, you talk to other academics and their clarity is not necessarily their, their business, but for journalists, it is. And there's one reporter I talk to a lot, who I won't mention, who I call the Senator Whisperer. Uh, he's somebody who, because of his personality, I think sort of uh, makes it easy for senators to talk to him. And he said, I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with Republican senators who are gnashing their teeth, tearing their hair out because of something President Trump did, but will not say anything. Um, and why? And the reason is pretty simple. They want to get reelected. Um, they have identified quite correctly the fact that, uh, that their constituents support the president. Uh, and support and not supporting the president is politically costly, uh, and that was a that was a lesson that was learned by Senator Corker from Tennessee, for example, Senator Flake from Arizona, who left the Senate. Um, they really felt that that they could not properly represent the positions uh, that they felt were important um, without antagonizing the president and, by extension, antagonizing their constituents. You know, being a senator is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, you're called the honorable, and uh, you know, there's only a hundred of you, uh, and you're pursued by journalists who want to know everything you're thinking uh, because it's such a compact body. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, these are elected officials who enjoy doing what they're doing. They enjoy the power, the influence, the visibility in the Washington community that's so high, um, and they don't, they, don't wanna, they don't wanna go home and they don't wanna go down to K Street and be a lobbyist. Um, and so they very often stay too long. Uh, there are senators who basically have worn out their, their welcome. Uh, they're not as effective as they used to be. Uh, and it's a problem with the institution because of the decision to 
run for re-election is, is, a, is a personal one. Uh, there's no one in the institution who says to them, you, well, you can't run for re-election because you're too old, you're not doing a good job. Um, so there are senators who really do uh, uh, overstay their welcome. You, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, and uh, I, I see the benefit of having one of the bodies uh, in our bicameral system be more deliberative and thoughtful, but how well do you think it executes that task today in this age of hyperpolarization? Honestly, Lorenzo, not, not terribly well. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Senator McConnell, for example, uh, well, you know, there, there have been procedural changes in the Senate, initiated, interestingly enough, by the Democrats under Harry Reid, which was to eliminate the filibuster for uh, lower level judgeships and administrative positions. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people you're gonna to talk to says he thinks this filibuster is a good thing. Um, I think it, it's, it's there basically as a consensus forming uh, machine uh, that if you've got 53 senators, the Republicans have, and you need typically 60 on any important vote, you've got to pick up seven on the other side, which means you've got to make concessions. You remove the filibuster, as, as has been the case now with what Senator McConnell did, which was to remove the filibuster on everything except legislative matters. So in terms of any kind of nominations, uh, there really is no way to stop them if you have 51 votes. The question is, do you really want to um, make that same decision about legislation? Um, and I know there are a lot of Democrats who are talking about it, um, but it's, I, it's something I think that is very important, not so much even to preserve the rights of the minority, uh, so much as it is to uh, force, Senate, force uh, a, a majority party, if it doesn't have 60 votes, to deal with another party, and in the process of that deal, get a result that benefits both sides. It's, it's not a great thing, it's not a great way to do it. It would be better if senators are on their own volition would make these deals without the, um, uh, the enforcement mechanism of the filibuster. But um, it seems to me that, that, that if, if the Democrats become a majority party, there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who want to um, basically remove the filibuster for legislation. Um, and I think that would be unwise. How frequently do you think the filibuster actually forces senators to make concessions across the partisan aisle? And how frequently do you think it just causes legislation to stall? Well, there are not too many examples of it's, if it's, uh, if it's inducing conciliation. Um, what generally, what, and that, that's the reason why uh, Senator uh, McConnell doesn't do, any, doesn't do any legislating, because it's subject to the filibuster, whereas, whereas nominations can go through with 51 senators. So you look at what the Senate has done uh, under, uh, under uh, the Republican majority and under the leadership of Senator McConnell, and basically all they have done other than, other than the emergency coronavirus legislation has been confirming judges. That's it. That's Senator McConnell's long game. He feels that his, his personal objectives as a uh, leader of the Senate uh, is to reshape the American judiciary, which he has really gone a very long distance to do. Uh, if the Senate has, to a large degree, uh, come to conduct in itself in a manner not too dissimilar to that of the House, while being unrepresentative of state populations, unlike the House, has its role been altered so much that it 
no longer properly embodies the intentions of the nation's founders? Yeah, I think it's I think it's largely unrecognizable to um, to the authors of the Federalist Papers. Um, I really think that they believe that the six-year term, which was which was really basically a, a a shield to protect senators from the backlash of public indignation and so on, um, really a lot of it had to do with taxation. Um, the reason why House members got two-year terms was because of the <coughs> excuse me of the origination clause of the Constitution, which says all revenue-raising bills shall originate in the House of Representatives. And Americans being tax-averse in 1788 as they are today um, would retaliate against somebody. We remember after a period of two years, hey, that guy voted to raise my taxes. But the feeling was, well, we're going to need taxes and um, we're going to have to give the senators a longer term to kind of protect them from the backlash of public indignation. Well, it turns out that the backlash of public indignation is unmediated today. Um, that senators in many ways feel as vulnerable as House members do. Um, and that, 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 that psychological uh, life jacket, uh, you know, seems to have been thrown overboard. So, so now that we've discussed how the Senate that we see before us today has deviated, has gone off course from what its original purpose was, I, I, it's kind of time to shift our focus toward reform. How do we make the body a more properly functioning unit? Here's, here's his response, and um, I, I, we're going to share a few thoughts after, after we listen to it. I think that, first of all, the Senate and, and the House of Representatives have over the years delegated far, much, far too much power to the president. You know, if the president, as President Trump famously said, I have Article 2, and Article 2 tells me I can do anything I want, you know, it sounds like an outrageous statement, but it's basically correct. Uh, and it's correct because Congress, frankly, has not been able to do its job for a variety of reasons. Some of them, one of which is that is, it has basically stripped itself of a lot of the support, um, the research, uh, the institutional backing of experts and so on that enable them to write legislation better. Um, really, the only organizations that support the Congress now, the General Accountability Office and the Library of Congress. Um, uh, you know, while the president has all the resources of 13 executive departments, uh, and you know, Congress long ago realized that it couldn't act with the expeditiousness, with the speed of the president, and began to delegate uh, all kinds of what ordinarily would be legislative powers to the president. So my feeling is the first thing they really need to do is examine um, the prodigious granting of power to the president um, and begin to pull some of that back. Not to cripple the presidency, you know, not to make the president's life a, a burdensome one, but I mean, basically all, all Congress has left to it when it really comes down to it is the power of the purse. And as we saw in the case of the border wall, the president wanted to, wanted to build a border wall. Congress wouldn't appropriate the money. The Congress had appropriated money for other purposes, which the president then repurposed to divert money to the building of the wall. And that shouldn't happen. Uh, the power of the purse should be, should, should be absolute. 
Um, another thing I think that, that, that Congress should do is to uh, go back to congressionally directed spending, uh, which, you know, something which has been known pejoratively as earmarks. Uh, this was something that Senator Reid, I know, felt very strongly about, uh, which was that, um, that the earmarks give us uh, House members and senators some ability to deliver tangible things to their, to their states and districts. Uh, it, it enhances their electoral position, certainly, uh, but the alternative is what's happened is that the decisions now about projects in the states and, <clears throat> and congressional districts are made by bureaucrats. They ought to be made by senators and House members. Um, that I was talking to a congressman from New Jersey the other day, um, and he represents a district uh, that has a great deal of the Atlantic Coast shoreline, Jersey Shore on it. And he said, you know, back in the old days, he said, I could direct um, the Department of the Interior to, um, uh, to put money into beach re replenishment, where the beach was being washed away. He said, now uh, that decision is made by the Army Corps of Engineers. He said, now I have a good relationship with the Army Corps of Engineers, but what I have to do whenever the beaches in Long Branch, New Jersey need to be replenished, I got to call the, uh, the regional headquarters of the, of the Army Corps of Engineers in New York and bargain with them to get them to deploy their resources to that part of the Jersey Shore. So I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing I think that would be very helpful. I mean, they're gonna, the president's always going to have a built-in advantage in terms of the speed with which he can act. Um, but, but I think that Congress has been far too generous in delegating its legislative power to the president. And I think they really ought to start uh, trying to retrieve those powers. Well, uh, now we've listened to it, and so what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, so just kind of listening back through this, uh, it seems like it's, when we're talking about reform here, it feels like his main focus is um, on ensuring that there's a balance between the three branches of the federal government, right? So a balance uh, between the executive branch and the legislative branch, uh, where he observes uh, an imbalance of power between Congress and President Trump. And we touched on this earlier in the interview. But the main thing I'm still kind of wondering is is the imbalance of power within Congress. And this is something that uh, people can discuss and debate outside of the episode. But, but that's still kind of what I'm wondering is if we look at the Senate and we say, okay, yeah, it's undemocratic. Uh, what Professor Baker has explained is that that's kind of the intention of the founders is they didn't want it to be an entirely democratic body because they wanted it to serve as an anchor uh, so it, it, the, the thing that I'm still wondering about is if if the Senate itself is undemocratic, but it's also not properly executing the task of being a balancing force, then what what role is it serving? What benefit is it imparting other than taking our legislative branch and making it undemocratic? Well, I mean— there, I think he's trying to get at there's kind of a harmonious balance between the those two branches, the legislative and executive, and I think uh, they must deviate their power equally. And I think he's getting at more broadly that the power is unequal right now, and that may be into uh, what you're getting into. I mean, I agree it's an undemocratic system right now, and I think it's just about putting the balances back together. It's just a matter of how you do that in such a partisan uh, storm. 
And and you're completely right. There are a lot of sources in the government that create this lack of democratic representation that feel antiquated and uh, as though they don't function properly. And this, we've talked about this before on the show, uh, when you spoke with Lawrence Lessig, the Electoral College. This feels like another kind of antiquated function of our government that needs to be assessed further and needs to be adjusted in order to fit our modern democracy. So we need to keep asking the tough questions, we need to keep consulting scholars, we need to be thinking about ways that we can resolve the harsh partisan divide in our country in the pursuit of a brighter future, and uh, I think that's all that anyone really wants. Yeah, we can end it there. Thanks, of course, to Dr. Baker for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure, and he had a lot of very useful knowledge to impart. And as always, thank you, our listeners, so much for your continued support and for listening to Picket. If you'd like to stay up to date at the latest developments here at Picket, uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Picket Podcast. No space. You know the drill. Also, if you enjoy the show, make sure to rate the podcast in whatever format you listen. And if you like our intro-outro music, make sure to check out I Means Love on Spotify or wherever you stream music. And if you'd like to contact us with any questions or comments, you can visit our website at picketpodcast.com. And we'll see you next time on the Picket Fence with us. <laughs>